Life is not a meritocracy, and yet we are never taught how to navigate life outside those confines. How can you manufacture feelings of positivity around you? Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Today, Ed and I, we we decided to read a book together. But the funny thing is, Ed, are our books the same? Uh, Well, Brian, they're not the same. They're two kind of different books. They're very, very similar. But yeah. um, And as we went to record today, we discovered this fact. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the funny thing. But all right, audience, it is the same book. It's the same title, same author, many of the same same stuff inside of it. It's just actually Ed has a newer version and I have an older version. He has the hard copy and I have a Kindle version, which it's kind of weird to me because you would think the Kindle version would get updated just as fast as the hard copy. (laughs) But uh, so, I mean, Ed actually brought this book up to me and said, hey, maybe we should look at this because this is really good. What are your thoughts about just this right off the bat, top your synopsis of it, you think? Well, so the way I got the book is a mentor of mine uh, was talking to me, the one that I gave the three meters own book to, and we were talking about that. And then he said, hey, you should really check out the science of likability. And uh, just based on who he is and the mentorship, I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And it wasn't super expensive. I got it. Easy, fast read. And uh, yeah, I've I really enjoyed it. I've actually read it uh, one and a half times. We'll say, yeah, exactly. So I uh, I've actually listened to it three times. Um, I bought not only did I get the Kindle version, but then I also grabbed the audio because the Kindle version was like two ninety nine or three ninety nine, and then the audio they were like for another a dollar ninety nine, you can have the audio piece. I'm like, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> I got that, and I've listened to it. every time I rode my bike. I listened to it. Uh, just to kind of get a hold of it, you know, but what was fu- what I found funny, though, Ed, um, I was reading because once you told me about it, I looked it up and, you know, automatically I'm, I'm a I'm a reviews guy. I'll go check out reviews and there are there are good reviews and then there are some really vicious reviews. <laughs> so one guy, he he said, yeah, if you want to be a master manipulator and I'm like, what did the guy even read the book? Because the 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 author talks about using these techniques and using these this psychology that's involved in this for good not for bad that you can use it for the for negative but if you do expect bad outcomes and the whole point is for good outcomes you know um did you happen to catch any of those i I didn't look at the um reviews but you know i i mean i can see where Maybe some of these techniques could be used in a negative sense, but there's that word manipulate, right? Like, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a negative tone to it, but I can, I can kind of see where if you didn't use it properly, but I mean, we, we got an audience full of influencers, so I'm sure they're going to use it to influence, not manipulate. No, exactly. You know, it's, this isn't, this isn't a show about personal gain. It's about building up others to create good around us in a sense um, and to be better leaders, better followers, just, you know, people 
wanting to do right by others in a sense. Um, so with that, we're going to get into we're going to get into a, a couple of about six of the different chapters within this book. Um, and we're going to basically talk a little bit about each one of these chapters. Uh, they are they are similar but a little bit different for the two of us. Like Ed said, before the show started, we literally just, we, we were getting ready to start. And then we started talking a minute about the book and they're like, hold on, wait a second. That's not my chapter or whatever this is. You know? And so we actually had to sit here and dissect it for a little while, but it's the material that matters. It's, I mean, it's really good material. Um, but we're going to hit upon six different chapters. And then as a bit of a extra for the for another podcast, we actually want to take one chapter it by itself and just build on that one because that one chapter has just so much good information for leaders and influencers. And we want to make sure that we, we give that one a lot of attention. So with that, let's get started, Ed. All right. So <clears throat> I have for the first chapter, uh, it's, it's basically, so it's talking about how to improve people's moods, right? Mm-hmm. And when you create a friendship, you just, a lot of people, we just let it happen. We don't really try to create a friendship, right? And basically what the author is saying is this, this, this doesn't play to what your strong suits and your abilities are. So one of the ways is to, um, to make a better impression or to improve people's moods is a good way to make a better impression. But how? How can we help improve people's moods, right? So when you strike up a friendship, do you force the issue or do you just kind of let it happen, Brian? Um, I'm a mixture of that, I would say, Ed, but a lot of times I just let it happen. Most of the time I do, but sometimes it's like if I notice somebody's, to me, if somebody seems to be interesting and and we and I would like to connect a little bit more with that person, then I will try to kind of, I'll try to steer it you know, to make to create a bond, kind of like with you. Yeah, and so that's actually the right way. So the author highlights, uh, Patrick King highlights in the book that just trying to let it just happen on its own is actually, you know, kind of robbing yourself. It, it takes away some of your abilities. And one of the things that, you know, we can make friends more easily by doing is, um, is by helping to improve their mood, and we're talking about, you know, there's various ways, right? So if like for you, all right. So I got Brian. Brian's in a in a foul mood or whatever. He's a little off. But I know certain things. So I know riding the loop at Fort Campbell with one of your kids trailer to your bike and the other one trailer to your wife's bike, or maybe riding your own bike. That's a very good moment for you, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, you know. So if I can get you to think about that time, mm-hmm. get you to somehow. So all you got to do is say, hey, you know, I got a trailer for my bike. And w- where do you ride yours? It gets you thinking about that moment. And it could pull you out of that foul mood because you're thinking about something that makes you happy, right? Absolutely. Yes. So the thoughts of your kids and they're laughing and you probably fall down and Ethan laughs or you fall down with Ethan on the bike. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I feel like I've heard that story. A few times. Uh, but bring up, the, bring up those fond memories, right? We talked about it in our resilience episode. So that's one of the ways to improve a mood. So 
like right now where you are, obviously you're not with your family and stuff, but when, when now, right now you're thinking about that bike ride that you told me about with the kids yes, and, and how's it affecting your mood currently? I, you know, it brought a smile to my face. And on top of that, it's, <laughs> it's funny cause it makes me want to tell you more stories about Ethan cause we tend to laugh and I'm happy. Yeah. And it proves your mood. You know, I told, I said before me and our, our, our great legendary barber, Heather, we used to have Ethan stories that we would share with each other. Cause you might tell me one and Michelle might tell her one. And, uh, it, but it just makes you smile. Right. Like, um, yeah. So for you, it's the same, same idea. So it's a good way to improve, you know, somebody's mood, but I have to understand those things. Now, I know you like to ride bikes because we like to ride bikes together. So I can use that knowledge mm-hmm. to improve your mood. So I did it with your your example of your family, but there's other stuff. So, hey, Ryan, what's the longest bike ride you did? And that might instill some kind of pride, like bring back that feeling of pride. Oh, I did 56 miles or, you know, whatever it is. And those are ways that we can use to improve uh somebody's mood so if you wanted to improve a, a, my mood what would you how would you go about that um i would definitely so some of the things i know that you, one you're you're really into um military history um also i noticed you know you're you're like me you're a bit of a comic book buff so we like to talk about sometimes about like really good movies you know comic book movies and i think if i if i want to engage you maybe that's one of the things i talk about and because I've done it in the past. So if we talk about those movies, it'll take you to that happy place um, where you were happy the last time you talked to me. So you want to be around me again during another happy moment. And that's an excellent point. So, uh, in, in the article, Patrick King mentions that, that by bringing up those great moments, right. in your life, you can have a connection with me to that moment. So I wasn't there. But it may make you remember that, man, I remember when Ed brought this up or he brought that up and it made me really feel good. So now because I've attached myself into that fold, right, that makes you want to be around more because I'm a person who can improve your mood. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've talked about the there's a young lady I work with now. She works in a training room, young sergeant. And. She is just infectious, man. I'm telling you, I think I've, you and I have talked about her. I have never walked in there and she's not smiling. And she's like, good afternoon, Sergeant. Like just very bubbly. But that makes me want to, to stop by there. If I'm in that area, I'm going to stop. Well, I walk in her office and I told her this and I said, you have an infectious personality. You make people want to walk in your office just to speak to you. Right. And she said, thank you, sir. And that makes me feel so good. Guess what? I affected her mood by giving her a compliment. It's okay to compliment people. And now she's going to remember that when she sees me. Oh, I remember when Sarah Haley said da, 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 da. That's a good thing to compliment people to affect their mood. You had something to say, Brian? Yeah. So what's kind of cool about this book also is he actually links it to some type of scientific data that has been taken And what you're exactly talking about. It, it falls along with Pavlov's dog and how he was able to make the dog salivate uh, by ringing a bell and the dog associated that bell to food being presented. So basically 
you're going to be that actual bell. Um, and it brings good thoughts to mind is what it is. So the good thoughts to mind of that person is the dog food. Your presence is the bell in a sense. So, and that's what it, that's what, what it creates. It creates that automatic feeling of pleasantry. Yeah. You're, yeah. That's a hundred percent right. And then there was another study by Byrne and Clore that was conducted later and they added to the Pavlov study. And basically what they found is if people are nearby when we feel good, even if they were not part of that, uh, creating the positive feelings, we begin to feel good whenever they're around as well. So when I got promoted, you were there. And even though you are a mentor, I associate that you, I know you are there. So being around you is a positive mood boost for me based off of how that study was uh, conducted by Byrne and Clore. Yeah, this book has uh, numerous studies uh, mm -hmm. for every every kind of point that they make. So, um, and it, and it's good. And the mood altering thing is so easy to just say good morning to somebody, or you know, we talked about before telling somebody they did a good job. What's wrong with that? Um, that gives that mood boost that somebody needs. That person may be getting kicked all day. They may just be beat down. And that one moment you come into their office to say, you know, every time I come in here, you're so helpful. Hey, thank you. And then you leave and when you show that uh, gratitude, you may just lift that person for the rest of the day. And at the end of the day, they may be thinking about, man, that was awful nice. Like my mood really shifted because of what Brian or, or Ed said. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes, that makes yeah. total sense. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Chapter one is just trying to figure out somebody's mood. And again, you know, it goes back in our profession. We're told we have to know our soldiers, right? But this is just going back as an influencer and knowing the people around you. It doesn't have to be a subordinate. It could be your coworker and recognizing their mood. Um, and when they're in a bad mood, you know them enough because you've had some conversations to be able to help shift that, uh, that balance. Right. You know, and it, and what I find funny about it too, because with that, basically you're using um, a manipulation technique and we had a discussion not too long. Well, actually it was a long time ago. <laughs> I get to thinking like we've been doing this for uh, well, well into almost a half a year, but we started the discussion um, about it, about manipulation probably back in November ish or December. But Really, where he goes into is, you know, you're using techniques of manipulation to help influence but, uh, for the better. And that's what it is with that mood thing. It's like, if I notice Ed has having a bad day, then maybe I interject a conversation that will help kind of change his mood a little bit. And, and then he's happier. And, you know, and, and then it relates to some of the other things we're going to talk about in these chapters of now that person wants you around more. Right. And I, that's why I, I even said it. Like I told Ed uh, before when we were getting started to do this show, when we were we were talking about, hey, you know, we need to do a show together and stuff. And I was trying to pitch it to him that you have an infectious personality and that falls in line with this whole science of likability. That infectious personality draws people in. And when they're drawn in, they want you around. And that's really what this is about. So, yeah, great point. Ed. Great, great point. Yeah. No, it's it's so you're you're influencing people's mood and that may help alter their whole day. I mean, I, I just don't see the negative in that. <laughs> I don't either. 
That, that's what I'm saying, though. Like when we had the discussion about manipulation, sometimes it's okay. It's it's a good thing. It's a good thing to help get somebody out of that rut because, I mean, you think about it. If somebody comes into work and they're mad from the get go, or they're upset, or they're you know they're, it's just gonna the whole day is gonna be just like garbage. But yeah. what if you what if you had the chance to change that and help them? You know, with they're simple, going to be appreciative with a simple gesture. Like honestly, it doesn't take much to compliment somebody. Yeah, and uh, you know they've done something good. So yeah, it's fun. It's funny you say it because a lot of times um, I I like to when I see my my uh, individuals that work with me, I'd be like, man, I'm glad to see you today. You know, it's. I like to intro with that. Like, I'm glad to see you today. And it's not just a catchphrase, but it's actually, I'm glad to see them. You know, they came to work and I do it with a smile. So they, they associate that, you know? So it, it's funny you brought that up. Um, so let's, we're going to dive into the next, the next chapter we're going to talk about. So All right. if you, huh, what's that? All right. <laughs> Yeah. So if you um if you buy the hard copy, you the chapters may not be titled the same as what we're saying and if you get, you know, versus if you get the uh the Kindle version. So what I actually did is I took the names of the titles uh from the from the hard copy that Ed has for mine because I some of the titles I just didn't I didn't feel like the name was pleasing as much. Um but what we're gonna, we're actually going to go jump all the way over to what would be a chapter eleven for me, but that's chapter nine for Ed, and it's actually how to convince people to act. Reactance is a fancy term for reverse psychology. When you're when we're pushed to do something, it makes us want to do the opposite, and you can use this inclination to your advantage. Now, I mean. How many times, Ed, when you were a kid, how many times did your uh, mom or dad tell you you can't do something and then you did it? Uh, it felt like countless times per day uh, that they told me I can't do something. But I mean, and I was also very, uh, uh, what's the term I want to use? Smart. I was kind of a smart aleck kind of kid. So you be in this house by eight o'clock. I'm absolutely not coming until 805 just to stir the pot. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's the whole, I mean, that's the point is a lot of times people will do exactly opposite of what you're talking about because they don't want to, they, they, they don't want to do what they're told. They're rebellious in nature. You know, um, you know, he writes in this book, he says, regardless of whether or not you've reached the level of likability, you can still assert a level of influence over people simply because of how the human psyche works. You know, the whole human psyche. Um, if I'm told that, you know, you'll never be able to do this, I make it a, my, like, it's like a goal for me to prove somebody wrong when they say that. Because I, I've never liked to be told, no, you, you'll never be able to do that. No, let's, let's try it again. Let's see if I can uh, change that idea. So, and that's, that's a whole using the reverse psychology. Um, yeah, it happens all the time, uh, in the army where maybe you're one platoon and then there's another platoon and the platoon, two platoon sergeants, they bicker back and forth in front of the platoons. Like your platoon will never be as good as mine. You ever, you ever, you ever seen that before, Ed? Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> and does it work? Um, no, not a deliver like that. I, you can use it, you know? Uh, you guys know uh, we're, our PT average will be higher than yours. Our physical training average will be higher than yours. Something like that. Um, 
could build some competition, but delivered the way your example is, yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way unless unless that leader has some type of influence with that group of people. Right. You know, you know how to motivate them, knows how to get them, get their, you know, just kind of get them going, revved up and ready to go. You know, kind of like they're able to get that, that uh, ready to go to war speech type, you know, and, and when they get that speech from that individual, they're ready to do whatever he wants them to do. Um, but then if also at the same time, the other platoon sergeant or the other leader is saying, oh, you, your team can never beat my team. It makes you like really want to beat their team and you're going to work harder for it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I so, you know, me historical example that I think of is uh, when Patton marches to Bastogne mm-hmm. and when he first accepts that they're like, there's no way you're going to cover all that mile mileage from France to Bastogne, you know, to relieve the 101st. and Pretty much Patton was like, oh, really? Hold my beer. Watch this. Because he, there was no way he's failing that mission. There's no way. Once they said you cannot do it, he was not going to fail. So that's a historic uh, kind of example. Even D-Day, they were told that that's not going to work. That amphibious assault is not going to work. And then, you know, he got to prove the naysayers wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to read here um, the science behind this and what they mean by it. Uh, or what the author means. But in 1976, Penbaker and Sanders sought out to study a theory of behavior called reactance. Reactance is essentially reacting in the opposite manner of what is presented. They confirmed it. When subjects were told to do something, they felt a strong impulse to do the opposite to preserve their perceived freedom of choice. This confirmed the phenomenon of reverse psychology which uses reactance in the opposite manner to get a desired reaction from the subject. So, for instance, he talks about a little bit later. He says, uh, he talks about, you know, if, if a mother says, hey, I just don't, do not touch that vacuum. Do not, do not do, do not uh, vacuum the floor, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the kid will play with a vacuum and then try to vacuum the floor, you know. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think that works on everyone because I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I won't touch it. <laughs> I have so. used the, the other example that they give the, uh, uh, you can't go to bed right now, you know, to get a kid motivated to go to bed. I have used that on my, my son and daughter and it worked effectively, but I agree all the time. It's not going to work if you overuse it. Yeah. It, in my house, it depends upon if that kid is playing with an electronic device or not. <laughs> because if there is an electronic device in front of, especially Ethan, it's he's not going to bed. He'll stay up all night if he could. Uh, Eva, on the other hand, she is so free will. It's just amazing. Uh, rever- reverse psychology is something you've pro- you're probably familiar with, but then again, maybe you thought you were using it correctly and you may have kind of missed the mark with that. Um, it's about telling people to do something and then seeing them do the exact opposite, which is often the result that you want. All right. So you, you don't say, okay, Hey, listen, I don't want you to try to lift that thousand pounds of weight. They know they can't do uh, lift a thousand pounds of weight. I mean, they can, they, well, I probably could try. And then they go try, they hurt themselves. You know, it's, it's really about kind of guiding them along in the, in, in, you can create kind of like a, a friendly competition at times. Um, and we've, we used to do it all the time with our different platoons. You know, we'd create competitions back and forth. Like I mentioned earlier, um, Oh, mine will do better. Our big one was land navigation. You remember Ed? 
Yes, the land navigation streamer was the prize of the whole thing. But it was also because it's the one thing that, um, you know, academics, the student could be a bad test taker, some of them other categories. But that land nav, that was strictly the instructor being able to teach the student and the student going out there and performing what they were taught. So I felt like that was more of a absolutely a reflection on who gave that instruction. So that's why that land nav was such a huge thing. Yeah, but at the same time, I would use, I used to use it as a, hey, listen, such a student thinks they're going to beat you all. Do you guys believe that? Because they said that you can't beat them. And, you know, that was just kind of like a final motivation type thing because I knew myself and my instructors had done a, an immaculate job at teaching them how to properly do land nav. That's why we won it three times in a row. So. Oh, here we go. I, I went more Pavlov with mine. Uh, if you, you if you all get four points uh, out of four points, then you get donuts from. So it's four out of four. You get donuts from Krispy Kreme. If everybody passes, a hundred percent passes, then you just get regular old donuts. So there was a motivation yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let me. I'm going to finish off reading a little bit at the end of this chapter because I, I really find it to be interesting. All right, the. The best way to use reverse psychology is to champion the opposite of your actual opinion. In other words, you play devil's advocate and gently guide the conversation to your desired reaction. When you argue the other side, it's not uncommon for people to push back and find the true value in the side that you're advocating against. This is a great psychological trick in getting people to look at your position without browbeating them. You don't come off as a bully. Instead, you appear thorough and you're able to subtly and gently guide people to your side. To me, when I, you know, when I read that, um, or actually, I, see, I didn't read the book so much. I, I've looked over pieces here. I listened to it. But when I heard that, I thought to myself, you know, it seems like common sense. But then again, if you use it in the right manner, you know, and you don't try to use it all the time. It, I think it actually works, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and this is going back to, you know, that's influence. That's not manipulation uh, for that person that gave that review of this book. That's influencing people is when you learn these things and you put them into practice. And you're not putting it into practice because of your own personal gain. You're putting it into practice to help others. That's that's influence. That's valuable. Yeah, it's uh, his last two sentences of this chapter. Uh, I I love it, especially because it says influence in it. But people value their freedom of choice and independence, and reactance is a strong reflection of that. Fortunately, the awareness we are now we now possess of reactance can help us influence people in any direction we want. So, once again, any direction we want, but the direction should be positive, should be in the positive nature. You know, for instance, if we're trying to, you know, we're trying to win in an event or we're trying to increase sales, or we're trying to uh, to complete the mission, you know, using that at the right time through a conversation that, I don't know, I just don't, I, I don't think y'all can get it done, you know, like that. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on it? So, and we'll talk a little bit more about that asking what are your thoughts, because that's actually part of another chapter. But when you, and that's basically taking two two different chapters and kind of pushing them together. And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, I mean, if we did this and they'll actually come up with a plan of how they can actually overcome. And that's what's so cool about it. So you when you tell them, I just don't think you can do it. What are your thoughts? How would you how would you do it if, if we did get this? Done? 
and now they're building their own plan to get it done. And it, yeah, and it also, so you're developing that person's creative and critical thinking, and you're decentralizing your command or leadership, which makes them feel mm. better about themselves. Which builds Jocko would be proud. Wins <laughs> get some win streaks. I'm very disappointed in you, though, Brian. Why? Because you didn't mention my favorite study, the graffiti study for this uh, this chapter. The graffiti. Study. Uh, so basically what the graffiti study was is they set up two restrooms and one said, do not write on this wall. There's a very bold sign and one did not have the same verbiage. Mm. And can you guess which one had all the graffiti or the majority of the graffiti on it? The one that said, do not write on this wall. The one that said, yeah, because like in the book, he says, I can just picture somebody in this, in this, in this restroom going, huh, tell me what to do. Watch this. Like, um, so that was interesting in how you convinced them to act. They, they knew, you know, they, their hypothesis was they're going to get more graffiti on that sign because the sign is giving you instructions that you cannot write on this wall and in defiance you did. So it's just another way to kind of influence how people uh, act and react. It's, you know, it's so it's funny you said that. And, and we mentioned earlier how our books are different. Like as you were reading about that, I'm, I'm like scanning over the chapter. I'm like, no, it's not in my chapter. So that's the oh. difference between the two books. <laughs> I will tell you. It's probably best to go ahead and purchase the one that Ed has, the hard copy. And you know what? We'll make sure we put it in the show notes. And that way people can you know go to it and pick it up. Um, it, that's funny. But actually, when you brought that up, it made me see something that I, I totally skimmed over and missed that I actually talked to uh, my commander about the other day. We had, a, we had a small mini discussion after I had heard it. But another example of re- reverse psychology, according to studies, the children of parents who don't make a big deal out of alcohol or drugs tend to not abuse these substances. In contrast, parents who made a big deal out of alcohol and drugs and specifically forbade them tended to have children that were likely to abuse them. To that that rang you know that really rings a lot to me and, and actually he and i had the conversation about it and he you know um he felt the same way he's like yeah that makes sense so um but with that you ready to move on to that next chapter ed yeah so uh that's funny how you transitioned to me we work so well together and the next chapter is how to work well with others chapter seven <laughs> or chapter nine for me <laughs> yeah, or chapter nine for brian yeah. Uh, and, and so the gist of this chapter, so we become, you know, we've established this friendship, like I talked about with chapter one. And then, you know, you would think, well, maybe I'm going to go straight into this circle of trust. And we've all talked about circle of trust. Everybody has one, but you don't go straight to the middle of the circle. So the circle of trust is also broken down into parts. And then you have to work towards, you know, moving towards the middle of the circle of trust, the inner circle, that's where that's kind of your dearest friends and your family members. Those are your people who are the closest to you. Mm-hmm. And then as you move away, the circle furthest away, those are friends you might see four times a year. You may not, I mean, now with social media, things are a little easier to keep in touch, but actually, let's go to dinner maybe four times a year. And then outside of that circle, it might be just kind of acquaintances. So faded friendships, business contacts. Let's talk about business. So if you're in a business meeting and you're getting proposals from people, 
okay, those are acquaintances now. You shared your business card. They gave you your their business card, right? But they're not in that inner circle. I'm not putting you in the middle of the circle. We may even have lunch together, but you're not coming to the inner circle. You're an acquaintance. You're in that further out circle. And there was a study done uh, by Bernard Merstein, and he came up with a theory on friendship acquisition. All right. And it's called the stimulus value role model of social interaction. And what this is, so there's different stages. There's three different stages to it. And in those stages, so the first stage of friendship is the stimulus stage. And this is where we're concerned with evaluating people based on their physical attributes and superficial traits. So uh, when I first lay eyes on somebody, so let's talk about uh, the first time, you know, I saw Brian <laughs> because Brian had this gnarly mustache. <laughs> but at was, the time, you know, hey, like, so real quick, that mustache, <laughs> I actually, yeah. I had the division sergeant major poking fun of it and actually trying to like get me to shave it off and i was like no i'm not shaving this it's <laughs> <laughs> but when we but that that mustache was it was its own thing uh but in the first stage of friendship so if i me and brian have talked once or twice that very first stage the stimulus stage, that's where I'm kind of looking him over physical attributes, superficial traits, right? Mm. So the author calls it the eye test. And basically what the eye test is, if I look at a picture of me and Brian together, you're you're looking at it and saying, okay, would they be friends based off of just what you see? All right. It's not super complicated. Based on that mustache, I would not have been very friendly with Brian. <laughs> it was a terrible mustache. I hope he never gets it again. <laughs> My wife feels the same way. But later, after we work together more closely, right, and you see us in a picture together, you would be like, oh, those two are friends. You can tell. Does that make sense, Brian? Mm-hmm. Like through the eye test. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, it's that whole judging a book by its cover type situation too, right? You look at you look at these two books and you think, oh, they don't they don't go together. Um but then after a while, you read you read a little bit more into it, and you're like, oh wait, you know what? These actually they complement one one another, and that's that's kind of like how our our relationship, our friendship, our likability has kind of grown between you and I. Yeah, no, I agree, and and so this is not foolproof. So I will tell you that one of the things they talk about is, um, you know, coming together with people of similar uh, age, right? Age, appearance, and and their status. Well, I can tell you for whatever reason, my wife tends to have friends who are younger than her. So if you see them in a picture, you'll be like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Right. The eye test would not work out because of the age discrepancy. Same thing. I was just, oh, I can't believe I'm going to tell this. So I was just in Savannah with one of my young captains and the waitress asked me, was I his dad? So embarrassing. So yeah, so she made the assumption that well they got they can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> listen, our listeners, listen to you laugh like the Joker. Uh, <laughs> but, but it works with this. It shows that, that she did the eye test. All right, she did the eye test. What would these two be friends? Reaction? No, that has to be his dad. What would your reaction? Come on, what I would cannot your say because we try not to use those words on this show. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Actually, what was the what was that? He reacted. He said, "No, he's not my dad. (laughs) He's a coworker." (laughs) 
if I was his dad, I was the cool dad because we were having pints and we were eating fish and chips. Oh, it's at, at, fishing. Oh man, at Churchill's Pub. <laughs> That's not the oh, plug. I'm not goodness. affiliated with Churchill's Pub in Savannah, but it is good. Uh, you talking about Savannah, Georgia? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wow, that's yeah. All right. <laughs> Continue on, my friend. All right. So the second stage of this is the value stage. And it is just what it says. Finding people to share our thoughts, thoughts, and morals. All right. So the guy that referenced this book to me, this this is one of the many times in this book that I heard his voice. And I've said it before. He used to always say millionaires hang out with millionaires, and I couldn't figure it out. But this is it. People of similar values are going to tend to befriend people with similar values. That's just it's it's the science of it. You know what I mean? We don't want to hang out with people that are, you know, hey, I'm trying to think how to say it properly, but th- we don't want to hang out with that guy that may be stealing from the store as we walk yeah. through it. That's not that's not who I'm rolling with. I'm too old for that nonsense. Now, back in the day when I was a kid, who knew? But <laughs> They were to entertain. Well, I mean, it, when you think about it, though, it's like, um, you know, how many times as a child, like, or, or is growing up that you know, parents would tell their children, "Hey, you know, you, you are who you hang out with." They they say it all the time, and it never it doesn't sink in either because there's that. Remember what we talked about earlier, uh, the resistance of of no, I'm not that person. It's just that's a friend of mine. But then we don't we we see it later on as we grow older. You know, it's. And I think that's an advantage we have in the military versus a lot of others. Um, now, there are people that, that they leave their local area, you know, for job wise or school and then they come back. But with ours, it's like we pretty much completely pull away from it. And then when we do visit every once in a while, we're like, oh, such and such is still um, working at the gas station, pumping gas for such and such. Oh, that's not very cool. You know, I, I see it like that. Exactly what you said. Yeah. And even in the military, if you ever notice, like when we have a class, right, when we have a class, the people who sit together, we, we the little groups, it's usually people who are similar and, and values or maybe locations that they, they group by these similarities. Right. Oh, yeah. So it, that's because well, they feel comfortable. Yeah, because absolutely. It's their comfort level. Right. So that's kind of the second stage, the value stage. That's what we're seeking people with similar worldviews, what right and wrong is. So my definition of right and wrong, your definition of right and wrong are similar, but Schmuggatelli may be a little bit different. All right. So he's probably not going to be somebody that we would associate with based off of this model. And then in the book, they give the extreme example of a group that concerns itself highly with the value stage would be the Ku Klux Klan, right? Their values are the same. Whether, you know, we know that. I don't agree with them. We know that, but oh, yeah. their values are the same. So they tend to hang out and become friends together. They have that bond based off of their extreme beliefs. But it also, Ed, if you think about it with those same, sometimes they will twist it slightly, whether it be that type of group or, or, or some type of, you know, like hate group, whether no matter what race it is, whatever it is, if it's if it's if it's a group that's against another race or anything like that, right? They tend to use they'll use generalities of like, well, don't you hate it when such such does this? Well, then you're like us, you know. Yeah. And that's what they'll try to do to pull people in, which it 
it's using it for the wrong reason. When we talked about earlier, manipulation, they're manipulating somebody for the wrong reason. Yeah, absolutely. And having these similar values, um, what it really does, if you and I don't have similar values, Brian, then it's going to be quiet time when it's when we're around each other. Like You're not going to have as much to discuss. Now, like you said, we're fortunate because with the military, the military gives us certain values that we share. So we have some things to discuss regardless, but beyond a military realm, right? You're probably, so when you, you know, we talked about earlier, when we're in an organization in the military, there's always certain people you hang out with at work and then other people you hang out with away from work. And usually it's because your values line up better that you hang out with that person away from work. I could like Brian at work, but we're really not on the same page. So probably not going to dinner with Brian. So that's kind of how we base that as far as our friendship. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, my good friend, Nikolai, who's still back at Fort Campbell and he just graduated SLC. So if he listens, congratulations, but him and I got along. Hey, wait, real quick. Yep. Is Nikolai, um, the one who his wife worked with your wife for a little while? Yeah. Okay, cool. Now I know who they are because I ran into them after you left. And I was like, oh, you're Ed and Tammy's Russian friends. Yeah. No, he just graduated yesterday. So, <laughs> Well, good for him. Hey, Nikolai, obviously this comes out much later, but congratulations, man. Really proud of you, brother. Yeah. Keep driving on. Now he just needs to get pinned, uh, promoted. But our values kind of lined up, and we were both hockey fans, and we're not going to say what team because we're both in despair right now over hockey. Um, but those are those similarities though. Oh, you like that hockey team? I like that hockey team. And then, yeah, you know, he comes to my house for Thanksgiving and he hits it off with my siblings. Cause guess what? We all like that hockey team. So, and he had a great sense of humor. Those are those similarities and those values that we shared. And then the last stage, and the author says the deepest stage of friendship is where your inner circle is. That's the role stage. This is the stage of friendship based on how people would compliment us in working toward a shared goal. I didn't say how we can manipulate them, how people will compliment us in working towards a shared goal. This means the deepest friendship function is a sense like business relationships. There has to be ultimate compatibility and a sense of benefit for each party equally or reasonably equally. That's why that stage is so important. We have to, in, in, the, um, in the role stage, the, this is our inner circle. These are people I can work with. This is me and Brian launching this podcast and staying in touch after we've left the same uh, organization, which in the military, that doesn't happen as much, especially as much as Brian and I talk. Brian. Oh, no. I don't know if he knew it before today, but he would be in my inner circle. He is in, we're in that role together uh, because we got this and we've got future plans coming real soon to you, to you folks. Oh, are you saying, are you saying that I'm in the trust tree? Yes. And I'm going to tell you that my inner circle is very small, especially if without the last name, the same as mine, that circle, I keep it very small because you know, the trust tree, but, <laughs> but these are mutually beneficial. And I think that's the biggest thing to work with on that, Brian. What do you think? Well, you know, it's funny that, you know, that, that last, that last uh, stage, 
that correlates very well with the episode uh, Michelle and I we did uh, that released not too long back, uh, dealing with you know creating influencer marriage. Because if there's not a a, a, a level of trust there between two spouses, it really is not going to work well, right? So you it has to be an inner stage type thing. If you are in any of those other stages and you're married. It's not going to work. It's things are not going to uh, they're they're not going to mesh up properly. Uh, the there's it's going to create more turbulence, so to speak. And I mean, so I, it's funny that you brought that up and you were talking about. It and, and I literally went straight in my mind. I went straight to that episode uh, where we were just banter back and forth about trust and and communication. So that's awesome, man. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, my wife is the dot in the middle of the inner circle, like all things revolve around her in my inner circle, but, but I feel the same way. So this model, why is this model important? Well, if I understand this model, I can figure out where I fall into the stages. So if we're looking at, if I'm looking at this model, it helps me understand where I fall into the stages with say Brian. All right. And then that's how you can understand. And then, but how do I move from this circle into the next circle and the next circle to get into the inner circle where we're mutually beneficial or from a business aspect or whatever personal aspect. So recognizing the stages helps you to recognize how to move forward. Yeah. That's, I mean, I love that. I mean, it's it in what it does is it kind of gives you a, a waypoint, so to speak. If you were in like a land nav, it gives you a point and then you can move to the next one, but you have to get to that first point. If you don't get to it, you'll never make it to the other ones. That's really good. Yeah. Um, so land nav, like where you won the three streamers, which I won one of those for you, though, by the way. Just saying. Um, it wasn't for me. You were part of the team. Part of the right? team. We were yeah. all team. Well, yeah. yeah. I didn't hear you say part of the team when There's you won no- three earlier, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, the other part of this chapter he does talk about, there was a study done, and I think this has changed since this study, and I, I can't recall the date of this study, but basically what the study said is it was a study on gender, and it was there was a divide where males are more comfortable with competition and comparison than females when they're placed into a group. I think that things have changed so much now that I think uh, females thrive in competition as much as males. So in the study, it says that females kind of shun away from uh, competition. They weren't as comfortable with it. And I think that that's changed since that study. I think it was like an early 1980s study. I'm be honest with you. I cannot right. remember the date. But I, you know what, though, I would agree with you sort of, Ed. But then again, I think that all falls along of personality type, you know, because I could tell you my wife, my wife for particular, she's not really big in being competitive. She just likes to be a part of the group versus maybe somebody we worked with before who's very competitive. Uh, well, remember, uh, uh, Corey Tarr, his wife, what was uh, his wife's name? Uh, Elizabeth. She was very competitive. Run. I mean, well, I would think she would be competitive. She ran like I remember one time I walked in and she was on a treadmill and she was just getting after. I was like, good night. That young lady can move, you know. So and I figured she was probably competitive in wanting to do well in the PT test. So, you know, there's different ends of the spectrum there. I think it's all about personality, though. Yeah, I think that and that's what I'm saying, like with this this uh, study and actually the study is conducted at 89. And here here's the bottom line to the study. Collaborating females like their partners more than competing females. This effect was only found in females. 
Females in competitive groups rank themselves much lower in terms of likability after the task. Males in competitive groups rank themselves much higher in the competitive task. And like you said, things have changed. Yeah. Uh, females are, are, you know, females are a lot stronger. And I think that personality plays a role. And a lot of, there's a lot of variables into that. So, I mean, the study is there. It is a 1989 study. So we're talking 20 years. No, 30 years. Oof, my math 30. is bad. 30 years ago. <laughs> so, yes, things have changed a little bit uh, since then, too. Like, so, no, I've, I can tell you, my sister is uber competitive. Uh, and she may get it from me. You know, we may have played in a basketball tournament and I've threatened to put on a dress because she was playing bad. And then she went on to be like the star of the game. Mm. But <laughs> she's always been like that. And it could be growing up with an older and younger brother that made her that way. So that's why I was, like that study. It's there, but I didn't want to get too in depth with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of see where you're saying, you know, because it, it's almost like it's a bias study a little bit. Because also, if you think about it, when it was done, the times, a lot of people that would have been studied then, you get to think about, okay, so we're talking probably people in their 20s to 30s in the 19, in 1989. So you back up 20 to 30 years, you see how society was towards just females or, or just males. You know what I'm saying? So like people were conformed to be a certain way, whereas today... Or even the people, let's say, like your sister. Um, how old is your sister now? Well, don't tell me how old she is. She was born in the 80s or the 90s? She, she was born in the 80s. You're trying to get me stabbed. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I try to do that. But because she, she was born in the 80s, she hadn't conformed to that, that way of thinking prior. So she started, you know, she obviously conformed to the way that it, it has gone over the past, I don't know, 20, now 30 years. So... Uh, I think that's like you kind of have to look at it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And and again, like variables, right? Like the two brother thing. I left home when she was very young to go into military, so now she's the oldest. My brother was a handful because he was an angry little child, so she's dealing with that. So these are the things, you know. And I got her into sports early, so like when she learned to play basketball, she learned to play with me and my friends. And there's a twelve year gap. So you imagine the, the size difference in the people she's playing basketball with. She played softball. So even now she plays in Charlotte. She plays dodgeball. She plays softball. She bowls. So that doesn't sound like she's shunning away from competition to me. Oh, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I, I totally agree with yeah. you. But. So, all right, Brian, uh, what you got for us? All right. So we're going to jump into the, the next chapter we're going to talk about is actually uh, it's chapter 13 in the Kindle version, but it's chapter 11 in the hard copy version. Um, and it's how to avoid judgment and assumption. I'm going to read this little brief that he has here. Judgment and assumptions are created when you have little to no knowledge about someone. So you will fill in the gaps. Well, what you assume will be the true given the circumstances. Therefore, the more knowledge, the better to avoid judgment, assumption, and stereotyping. And the knowledge doesn't even have to be related or relevant. The more information in general, the more three-dimensional one becomes. So, you know, when I when I read that or, or, before, or when I was preparing for it, I like, you know who I want to use for an example on this? And we talk about him all the time. Let's talk about the bearded ninja, man. All right. He's going to listen to this. and But you think about it, right? When you first met him, right, did you think 
you know, everything that he talked about in, in the episode with him about being an army ranger and, and being an inf- a Bravo, you know, 11 Bravo infantryman who was a drill sergeant and he did all these things. Did you ever picture that of him when you first met him? No, I absolutely did not. There's nobody ever did. So we actually used to use this in class sometimes. We used to use him as the example because we talk about stuff like stereotyping and stuff. And very, 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 very rarely. Now, if we had a guy in the class who was a ranger, he might recognize something. It might be the way he walks. Who knows? But, yeah, no, I would never have put him uh, in the category with the people that did, excuse me, that I know did what he did. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he's because he's obviously evolved and changed and he's, he's kind of tweaked who he was. And I've always, I think I've uh, kind of uh, envied or emulated that in a sense, because I thought to myself, you know, if somebody can go from one instance to another, then why can't I, if I want to change my behaviors, my actions, my attitudes. So, but that's, that's the thing though. You don't realize what he was or what he was able to do without talking to him about it. Uh, the great example they give in the book, uh, they talk about like, for instance, you meet somebody who, you know, they went to college playing tennis uh, and they belong to a country club. Rich kid. You, you automatically assumed it, right? I, I honestly, I would, if they were in a, any, as soon as I hear the word country club, I think rich kid, that's just me. Right. But what we don't realize is maybe that individual. Yeah. Then now they're a part of a country club and now they may have a large monetary value behind their name. Maybe it wasn't like that before. Maybe they were just really good at tennis um, and they were brought up in a rough neighborhood. Let's look at the Williams sisters, right? They grew up in Compton. They grew up in a rough area and their dad pushed and pushed and got them through and they became phenomenal superstars. Now, we knew their background, right? But what if it's somebody you don't know their background? And we automatically start, you know, the assumptions are made and whatnot. Just we have to be careful. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can make people like you more, stereotype you less, and emotionally invest in you more by providing seemingly useless and nonsensical details about your life. People like to make fun of TMI. But reality is TMI can ultimately make you more likable, right? So let's say, for instance, Ed and I. We have, I mean, we've had numerous conversations and we've laughed at each other about stuff, right? Um, But we've kind of, we've turned that into a relationship. And now, like if you joke about like not liking a particular team with me, I know that that's not something that I may want to talk to you about um, because you have this like really bad taste of relationship. Stop. The (laughs) Patriots are an amazing team. Those of you out there who listen, um, and by the way, Charles Haley, um, I'm disappointed in your comment on Facebook. Thanks, buddy. That's all I'm going to say. How's the craft um, investigation going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever. All right, back to the show. Uh, <laughs> and back to the show. What was that like a news break? Uh, oversharing can actually make people emotionally invest in you more. Oversharing. Right. So one of those things that we over the Ed and I have often overshared is our children. Um, we, we would sit there and talk about it. He's got older children. I have younger children. I've got one older child, but we would kind of talk about that. Now, 
did we really have any reason to talk about our children? Well, sometimes we may have because we just want to tell something about them. But what we're doing is we're oversharing our personal lives, which allowed us to kind of know more and create less assumptions. For instance, parenting styles, you know. So it's just it's the use of the oversharing. Um, and to, to use that by sharing seemingly trivial information about your past, you develop a high degree of familiarity. I think back, Ed, you, you'll remember this too. It was you and I, we were on cycles. We were, we were, it was one of those mornings where we were just taking Uh-oh. a bike ride. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we were on the lower bowl there below the academy. And you were telling me stories about your dad. And I was, and I, I literally remember, I said, Ed, stop talking or don't say too much because we need to talk about that on the show. And I don't, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't remember how much, because it's so far back, how much we actually used of what you were talking about because I thought it was, oh, this is great material. This is great information. This helps the audience, you know, the likability piece of you and I. Do you remember that? I So I remember it. And I, I even remember what was kind of the, the start of that conversation, but I don't remember the conversation. So I want to say that the start of it had to do with me choosing to go by Ed on the show. And I think it does. I think it does. Um, but within that conversation, we discussed, you know, things like, your dad made you read or there was a point in time where you remember him coming, waking you up for breakfast and carrying you down to the breakfast table or whatever, or, or carrying until you. I was 13. <laughs> until you were 13. Did he really carry you when you're 13 years old? Uh, probably maybe, maybe 11. <laughs> <laughs> that might wow. be why my poor dad's got a bad back now. <laughs> poor guy. I mean, you know, you're, you're what? You're what, what 270 or so. Yeah. Now? Yeah. Big dude. But that's, but, and again, see, and that's another thing too. It's funny how those things work out. Cause do you remember when uh, you were upset about a particular senior person to us would make comments, not realizing that, you know, you are in shape and this and that. But he said, because, you know, his idea was because you looked big, that you were fat, so to speak. But if he'd actually saw your physical abilities, he would realize that there's a lot of muscle behind all that skin. Do you remember that? Yes, I, 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 I do remember that individual's comments. And I do remember having several discussions with you about him and the bearded ninja. Yeah, exactly. But in a lot of times I'd be like, Hey man, just let it go, dude. He's, he just doesn't, he doesn't see through that yet because he, and now that I think about it, if we reverse that, right. So that person still talks to me often. He really does. He sends me messages all the time. And I, I reply back. I think this is just me. And it's because he was obviously a closed off person. But if there was a relationship built between the two of you, right? Like the more the more intricate details that we just talked about, I don't think that, that would it would still be the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I didn't share much with him. Well, he didn't give me opportunity, but I didn't take the opportunity either to share more information and I didn't open up to that person. So yeah. Yeah. But then again, that was part of the defense of your defense. Right. And so we have to look at that also. We, we as influencers throughout this likability book, the science of likability we're talking about. All right. We as influencers, we have to make sure that we don't create a wall 
We don't create that defensive mode. Now, there may be some things we don't like about people, but we don't automatically point those out. And we don't trigger those because we're already, that's where we're making assumptions about someone. We don't know why they're doing, they're that way. Right. But now if we talk about it and you say, well, yeah, you know, I'm a big dude. I lift like 400 pounds, you know, with one arm and I, you know, it's just, I've grown and, you know, I eat, I consume the calories to be able to do that. And next thing you know, you're, you look like Eddie Hall or something, but <laughs> there's, but the, 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 what I'm getting at is, you know, there's, there's a reason behind it. You know, you know, if I look at you and then I see a picture of your dad and your mom, I'd be like, where does all this come from? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's yeah. That makes sense. And it, it is. All right. So uh, it's the, uh, yeah, go ahead. To me, I mean, it's, it makes you relatable too. though. When you start sharing stuff, it just makes you more relatable to people instead of being closed off. Cause when you're closed off and you're mysterious like that, people aren't comfortable with the approaching you. And it's really hard to influence people when you are unapproachable or deemed as unapproachable. Right. You know, and in, in a little bit over here, I'm going to read a little bit more about it. But when he talks about like he talks about um, when you give off more information, people are drawn to you because they know you, you know, and it's a lot of times people will they want to be that tough guy or that that I'm drawn back type person. And they don't want to talk You know, like obviously you don't tell your deepest, darkest secrets, you know, to someone that's. That's, you know, you have to obviously have that some type of judgment. But anyways, so it talks about people reciprocate when you just spout out all sorts of details about your life out there. It's very easy for people to feel drawn to you and feel that they know you at an intimate level. They're getting a glimpse into your inner workings. In reality, you're simply spouting out harmless information that is neither here nor there. However, in the minds of people around you, they feel that you trust them enough to share these intimate details that they can't help but be drawn to you. They can't help but reciprocate that feeling of trust by liking you more. You remember, Ed, when we first went through learning how to be instructors, we used to talk about the arena. Yeah. And in that arena... We don't want to give off too much of our information to our students because it's really not about us as individuals, but it's more about uh, the material that we have to cover. Yeah, yeah. And if you put too much in the arena, you could damage your credibility too with the, in the students' eyes. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely remember those discussions. But at the same time, if we tweak and prod and and kind of conform the information obviously it's the truth about us to those students and we're we're able to use that to our advantage and over time you you give them tidbits here and there they get to know you and they want to learn more from you you know whether it be about education or whatever okay so right off the bat when i started saying that the first thing i thought of is remember about the whole uh your classroom thought you were kane from wwe this is a Ed bashing episode. Yes, I do remember the one soldier. No, I do, but I do remember that. <laughs> I was bald then too. Yeah, but when you would walk in, they, you know, you could raise them up and get them, you know, hyped up, and then kind of get them to drop the bomb like Kane would, you know, from WWE wrestling yeah, and I, stuff, right? I do recall. So basically, they have to say at ease when I come in, and I would raise my arms when they say at ease because they all had to stand up. 
And then I would yell, carry on, which is the signal for them to sit down. And I would flop my arms down like Kane, and then they would all sit down. Yes, I do recall. But let's think about this. So they only knew that because you probably told them that you liked that, right? I did tell them that I, well, no, the soldier, uh, I was approachable enough that the soldier asked me if they could speak freely. And then they said, you look like Kane from SmackDown. And I said, that's funny because I actually know who that is because I really enjoy wrestling. And it just went from there. They made an assumption and a judgment about you, right? Yes. Yep. And then you fed them a little bit of information about you liking it. And then it turned into this thing. But when we think about it, right, the influence that you had when you entered the room, they wanted you there. They wanted you to teach them because they enjoyed the likability of you and they enjoyed the atmosphere it was created. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that's excellent. Yeah, I, I mean, that's... And it wasn't a, a it wasn't an Ed bashing. It was actually a compliment, my friend. Ish. By the way, he's a mayor in your state. I just want you to know that. He is. He's a mayor. Uh, he's a mayor of the East Tennessee area, isn't he? Yep. Okay. So overcoming stereotypes. This is the last part of this particular chapter. Let's face it. Stereotypes surround us. And I could talk days about stereotypes. I mean, I'm, I'm going to continue reading in a moment, but stereotypes, they're all over the place. The problem is, is we tend to get wrapped up in them or we allow them to be labels and they shouldn't be. We need to be able to see through those stereotypes. All right. So we all make all sorts of prejudgments about each other that arise from physical and personal attributes. This is not necessarily bad. In fact, it would, I would argue that the reason why human beings automatically stereotype each other is that it flows from our survival instinct stereotyping lions and lion shaped creatures was probably um, helpful to survival there is nothing fundamentally wrong with stereotype per se however when we use stereotypes to cut people out and dismiss people it becomes harmful these people might exactly be the type of people we need to meet these people might be the type of people that we need in our lives to enrich our personal experience. You can defeat stereotype uh, stereotypes people have about you by oversharing. When you throw out a lot of details, a lot of the mutual suspicion goes down and people feel more at ease around you. If the information you send out, there is consistent and seems to paint you in a vulnerable light, people might even become emotionally invested enough in you to want to protect you. After all, enough nonsensical detail eventually paints a fairly accurate picture about who you really are. So, I mean, it to me, it's really about throwing out what information you want them to know at the right times. Um, I could say that I'm not going to tell just anybody about maybe something that's very, very personal. I'm not going to, you know, uh, I don't talk about my marriage in a bad light with people. I usually only tell them the good things, you know, because one, I don't want people to frown upon who my wife is or anything like that or about me within the marriage. So like there are some things that I would say are kind of off limits unless they're within that inner circle. You know, Ed and I, we can have a conversation about our marriages, um, but we often get, uh, a learning point from it versus if I just walk up to a perfect stranger and start talking about my marriage, that's eh, going to be a little bit, that's going to be a little weird and it's not going to, uh, it's not going to fit the situation. So 
when dealing with this, this particular part about, you know, judgment and assumptions, make sure you poke and prod to know what you should and shouldn't talk about. Um, and, you know, hold some of that stuff back and you release it in tidbits. And what it does is that creates a building process, kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill. So with that, Ed, what is that next chapter we're going to get into, buddy? Well, before I move on, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, I was like, wow, if you have good self-awareness, that would work. And you have good self-regulation. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. I feel like your chapter had a lot to do with some emotional intelligence, which we've discussed before, and being able to use it, you know, to avoid those things and to get rid of those stereotypes. And just listen, TMI, uh, that would be my big message. That The book says there's no such thing as TMI. I would argue that there's moments, but, um, you know, but, but it's nothing wrong with opening up, you know, again, have the self-awareness to be like, okay, these are things that are off limits, but these are the things I like to share. Yeah. Well, and you know, the funny thing is that the last chapter you just talked about, about the different levels, I think if you, so you have to take out each of the different chapters and you have to kind of like form fit them through. If you're releasing information, depending upon what level those pre- people are in, will either allow them to go up a level or stay where they're at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes That's absolutely perfect, actually. Um, so the next chapter I have is chapter three in my book, How to Create the Foundation of Friendship. Oh, yeah. Brian, do you enjoy uh, one-sided friendships? So to say the truth, I don't have... So I hate to say that I don't have a lot of friends, so to speak. And that's because I don't like one-sidedness. I like uh, a togetherness. Okay. So when we worked at the, uh, when we worked at the Academy together, if every day you said, Hey, I'm going to shop it. And I said, Hey, pick this up, pick that up. Hey, can you grab this for me? But I never return that favor. How, how would that make you feel as a friend? I this well, my reaction would be is I would not tell you that I'm going there anymore because then I feel like you're using me and I'd be like, well, hey, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, how many it's funny. Um, long time ago, uh, I remember somebody constantly borrowing stuff and I can't remember what it was either. <laughs> but everyone was like, oh, this person won't stop borrowing. It was money. It was, bar- it was trying to borrow money for lunch or something. And uh no one wanted to be around that person at all. Oof, that's not that's not a good inf- effect, right? Mm-mm. So, and that's kind of what this chapter is about. It's talking about, uh, you know, to create the foundation of a friendship. We're talking about uh, equality and equity and feelings of fairness. They're big, so you, you everything has to be fair. And again, I'm not saying pull out a score sheet and be like, okay, Brian went to the shop and he bought this. So I have to go tomorrow and buy him a soda. And then the next day he can get me a coffee. That's not what we're talking about, but ballpark it. You know, I used to go to lunch uh, with the bearded ninja all the time. And let me tell you, the bearded ninja is hard to stay equal with because he'll buy. But then when you try to buy, you have to be forceful or he he's not going to let you. But I would try to buy because. The same way you feel bad if I or you feel like you're being used if I tell you all the time, hey, bring me this, hey, bring me that. But it goes both ways. If you're always buying and you won't let me buy, then I also feel bad because now I feel like I'm using you, even though you're the one saying, hey, I got it, I got it. 
So those are things that we have to overcome. Um, and we have to emphasize the fair play and equality in terms of value. Right. Mm-hmm. So the book does recommend kind of, kind of keeping a mental tally. Um, and, and usually, you know, all right, well, Brian bought last time we went out to dinner. So this is my opportunity and I have used some technique. So we talked about, I'm a bigger person. I have definitely pushed somebody to the side that tried to pay when I wanted, when it was my turn to pay and said, don't take their card. I'm bigger than them. <laughs> it's funny. You'd say it's, one of my t- it's funny. You say that. <clears throat> My father-in-law does that to uh, my wife and I all the time. Like if we go out to eat with them, um, he'll he'll slide the card. Like he doesn't have that advantage of being bigger, but he'll slide the card to the waitress and say, "I got all this," and we'll walk away from the table. Yeah. So I had this expensive. I had the same issue with my siblings. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So we'll walk away from the table, and it'll be you know. I mean, you think about it: two kids, two uh, four adults. Sometimes it'll be one hundred twenty-five dollars. You know, because if we get something real nice or sometimes, you know, in the eighties or nineties. And I'm like, goodness, man, he's just, but then again, as you were saying about your siblings, I had the same problem. My siblings, like, um, but my, my, so my mom used to be like that too. She used to try to sneak and pay and she was very good at it. Like my mom would get up to go to the, to the bathroom and would come back and we'd walk out and I'd be like, uh, did we just, did we just eat and run? <laughs> oh no, I paid when I went to the bathroom. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Died a ditch. <laughs> yeah, like uh so my siblings are the same way. Like when we go out to eat together, it's always kind of like, no, I got it. No, I got it. Yeah. Well, you got it last time. And, and I mean it's okay to keep that tally. My siblings and I, I don't think they should be keeping no tallies, but but little stuff. So the example they give in a book. So you and I order a pizza, right? At my favorite place in Clarksville, Tennessee, the New York Pizza Depot. And the pizza comes, it's even number slices in a perfect world. Well, I know that I have four and you have four. But what if I eat five, Brian? Where does that leave you? How do you feel? Well, um, so the problem is I know the Pizza Depot and there's no way I'm eating more than three because then things are huge. Okay. <laughs> but but if I have a ferocious appetite and I'm like, I want my four. Well, I mean, I would think myself, one, who paid for this, right? Did we share yeah. the cost? Did we share the cost? Maybe we should share the amount. But then again, because I know you and I'm within a certain level of the circles of friendship, right? I'm in the trust tree and you seem yeah. to eat a little bit more than me. Then to me, I'm thinking, well, he's really hungry. If, if I really needed that food, I'll just eat more or I'll go order another piece of pizza or something. Okay. So that's fair. But, but you are... Whether you mean to or not, you're mentally, you're keeping score. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I do it. I mean, she, like I said, she's the dot in the middle of my inner circle, but her and I definitely keep score on, especially pizza. Uh, but there's, there's a score there. I'm going, okay, uh, this is a smaller pizza than we thought. So you're only going to eat a piece, right? Like <laughs> leftovers is another one we keep score on in the fridge. But basically what it's getting at is you, you got to be fair. It's a friendship is give and take. It's not give, 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 because then you feel like you're, you know, there's a cheating going on and it's not take, take, take. Cause then now somebody's going to feel used and neither one of those things are good for the, the friendship or moving throughout them circles. So that's really the big highlight of, you know, being equal. Another thing about this chapter that I really like similarity. So when you meet somebody, right, Mm -hmm. 
you ask certain questions usually right away. Like, where do you work? What do you do? Where are you from? And you're doing this because you're trying to build that similarity because it's comfortable for you. So if I say, if I meet somebody and they say, oh, I'm from Maryland, then the next thing is going to be like, oh, I'm from this city. And have you ever eaten at this place or that place? Are you a Redskin fan? Because we're building a foundation of friendship through similarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just comfortable with people who are normal. I mean, not normal. We are comfortable with people who are similar to us. If you're from Maryland, you're far from normal. Trust me, I know. Um, <laughs> but when you find somebody who's similar, the chance of you bonding, the chance of you you uh, you having those values the same that we talked about earlier, worldviews, morals, you feel like that you can make some assumptions that they're going to fall in line with you. So if you meet somebody from Maine, right, what's the first thing you ask them? Uh, well, I'll ask them where at because obviously we're going to associate to, you know, the location. Okay. All right. And what if they're from the same small town as you or same small area as you? Uh, then we may talk about like different different aspects of those areas. Um, we'll talk about um, – Maybe, hey, well, what year did you graduate high school? Or, you know, we'll, we'll associate in that by that means. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because you're looking for those things. So flip it to the military. Uh, I just came from Fort Campbell, and I get to Korea. What's the first thing you're going to ask me when you see that patch? Oh, who would you serve with? Yeah, what unit were you in? And then, mm-hmm. I don't know why we do this, and, and I'm not saying everybody does it. These units are huge. And when they say, oh, I was in 3rd Brigade, of the 101st Airborne Division, the Rakasans, you're going to say, hey, did you know uh, Staff Sergeant George May? <laughs> like, yeah. There's thousands <laughs> of dudes in this brigade, but we go to one person that we know in that brigade and we say, hey, but we're looking for that bond. And, oh, man, when they say, yeah, I know him. Oh, oh we're, we're doing karate in the garage next. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny that you bring that up. That's, yeah. yeah. It works like that, right? In the military, we're so... Yeah. In, even in small towns, sometimes people will be like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this town. I went to this high school. Oh, did you know such and such? Yeah, I'm 20 years older than you. Like, I'm pretty sure I didn't know that person. <laughs> hey, was this person your principal? I'm 20 years older than you. But we look at those. We're looking. We're looking for similarities. And, and you know, as humans, it just made me think of uh, we had the guy at the academy who used to say, yeah, as a human. I don't know if you remember who that was, but I just thought about him for some reason. Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, wild hair golfer. <laughs> I don't. No, I'm not. I'm not recalling. Name, name, like an X Men character, Gene. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so humans are more similar to each other than not. So we all, you know, what's the old saying? I put my pants on just like Brian does. Yeah, one leg at a time. Yeah, if you cut me, I'm going to bleed just like Brian does. So we are similar already. And that's why we look for those things. Other things, we like similarities. They make us comfortable. And we have questions that immediately, like, I said, like we just talked about, there's just things you go to. And then one of the other things, and I'm not a fan of what he talks about here, but he's talking about another way to build similarity is by uh, trying to fit in through mimicking people's body language. Mm-hmm their voice tonality, their rate of speech, and overall manner of appearance. It's called mirroring. Mm. I'm not 100% a fan of 
mirroring because if I see you trying to mirror me, I'm going to be like, are they, are they trying to be like, what is going on here? Yeah. You making fun of me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but I can see time and place. Right. So I'm not going into a meeting and I'm trying to build some familiarity and then immediately going at a hundred mile an hour rate of speech, screaming and shouting. Yeah. Going to church. What do you hear? Well, everybody else is kind of quiet and they're talking in a low tone. It's church. So then, yeah, I'm going to mimic that, you know? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Uh, Yes. But you're mirroring what the overall appearance is that, that uh, familiarity. Mm -hmm. Can you think of like an instance? Cause I couldn't, I honestly try where mirroring would it be appropriate to try to fit into a group where it would be appropriate. Yeah. We wouldn't mirroring kind of work out to fit into a group. Um, well, I would definitely think like, for instance, um, if you're trying to get a job, right. Um, and you're going to an interview, you may mirror, you know, the, uh, you'll find, you'll do enough research to find out, Hey, what's, you know, what's appropriate here. And you try to mirror it because you want to feel like you want them to feel like you're going to connect because you're similar to them, even though you're going to, provo- you're going to provide different to me, you're going to provide, uh, information differently or you may uh, a different a different outlook, but you still want to kind of you know. So they see a professional, you know, or um, or sports. That's a big one too, mirroring sports because you know if we're all able to do the same skills, we could probably uh, do certain plays a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, no, and you know it's funny you mentioned sports too because sometimes you'll mirror the actions like at a sporting event too to try to kind of fit into yeah and be similar to everybody else. Because in some places it'll get you beat down if you're not mirroring the local fans. Yes. You know? Yes. So, okay. That's helpful because I was like mirroring. I just, I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't, eh, I was kind of, but the bottom line for this chapter. So if we back up real quick about that mirroring, um, w- one of the things we actually talked about, you know, in uh, the episode Michelle and I did uh, with the marriage thing is sometimes when you, when you, uh, communicate, you want to mirror also, not just mirror, not just mirror, like uh, a look, but also maybe attitude and tone. And sometimes because then you're feeding off each other, you know, if, so for instance, um, if let's say Ed, your wife is telling you about something that's very important to her. Right. And she's you know, she's really excited about it. And if you act like, yeah, uh huh, I got it. Yeah. I heard you, you know, there's, you know, that's going to turn into an issue at some point. You just know. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's actually something I, I have to work on. So that's kind of funny you mentioned that. Because um, <laughs> I am, I am bad. I, I listen, and I've gotten better. I used to not even listen, so I'm listen. But sometimes it's just like, yeah, okay. And sometimes that's what she wants, though. So sometimes she just wants to vent and get it off her chest. So. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's still the idea, though, behind it, that if you're able to, you know, communicate through mirroring, especially with your spouse. Now, you could do it also with other relationships and stuff. You'll connect more. And there's more of a connection. And that's what's, you know, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the similarity and familiarity to connect. And honestly, those same things. If I had to wrap this chapter up, if I had to just wrap this whole thing in a nice little bow, because I, I really like this chapter. Uh, on how to create the foundation of friendship, mm-hmm. similarity and familiarity are comforting. And I think um, that that kind of wraps it up. I mean, the only thing you really don't talk about is maybe equality. So equality in a friendship based off of similarity and familiarity are comforting. Oh, I like that. That's a, that's like a mission statement of the, of that chapter. <laughs>
And it's, it may be comforting, but it's also good to also to feel an uncomfortable so you can learn how to get into that comfort zone too. You know what I mean? Well, so you, you, you feel your, you feel your boundaries. And for me, opening up enough to ask these questions, to kind of build that similarity with somebody that's uncomfortable for me. So when I try these things and I have been trying this much more, uh, you know, over the last year or so. I'm already out of my comfort zone because that's just not who I was previously, but I kind of enjoy it now that I do it. You know, I like to learn about people. I, I, I used to spend so much time talking to students about where they were from and where they grew up and cause it was interesting to me people. Yeah. So I like to people watch and I like to gain people information. So, but yeah, that's chapter, uh, that's kind of chapter three, Brian. Yeah, I think it's funny that you brought that up, too, because, you know, the discussion we had before the show started about how this show has actually helped us become better influencers ourselves. And we're we're sort of mirroring very much a lot of stuff that we talk about. You know, it's not that we come up with it. We don't always just uh, talk about exactly things that we do. Sometimes we find and we discover new things and we're like, man, that's a good idea. Maybe I should try that. Not only do we talk about it on the show, but then we also try to use it. That's another point of mirroring too, that um, if you're doing something and I'm noticing it's working for you, maybe I mirror that also. And, you know, we're, we're starting to, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I just thought I'd bring that up because we talked about it earlier. Yeah, no. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like I can think of two, two influence, two people who have had, um, a growth in how they influence. And it would, I think it would be me and you. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, this next chapter. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next chapter, this is actually um, in the hard copy chapter 12, but in the Kindle version, it is chapter 16 and it's how to win groups over. All right. So group dynamics inevitably cause a leader to take charge even if they are passive about it and not fully aware. As such, the rest are followers, implicitly looking for someone to follow. If you can focus your efforts on the leader, you can more easily win a majority vote within a group. So we think about like majority votes and, you know, um, uh, to, to, you know, kind of get the group to evolve together. We've, we talk about this. We've talked about this so much. We actually have, we, um, our, the, the school that we taught at, we developed the, the group think mitigation type stuff through group dynamics. And to be completely honest, I wanted, I haven't, I hadn't really done something like that in quite some time, uh, since I left the Academy, which was a few months back. Um, I'll say it's been what three months almost now. And even before that, I didn't, I didn't do it all the way up until I left. So I could even back it up further and say it was probably December timeframe. So we're I'm about four, well, yeah, about four months later, maybe five months. Um, when this show comes out, uh, I would say I used some of the, uh, the elements of the group think mitigation that we did to create some group dynamics. And I purposely used some of the techniques that we used because I thought it would help with this NCOPD that I did. Um, the NCOPD was titled uh, NCO Basic Responsibilities. 
And we went through a whole rigmarole of different basic responsibilities that are talked about within the ARs, you know, the regulations the Army provides us. But we, but they were framed, in a sense, as a philosophy. Because really, when you're a leader, you're an influencer, you have a philosophy that you try to follow, your, your guidelines or, you know, your morals, ethics, you know, things like that. Um, you want to try to follow that. And obviously, you can make it better and improve it. But then again, at the same time, you want to constantly be developing and make it better. So we went through that class. And at the very end, we used a groupthink mitigation technique. But one of the key things I wanted to do was like, all right, well, I want leaders of these groups, but the leaders of those groups cannot provide the information to the questions that I'm going to ask. I want the group members, the leader of the group that I choose, they can only annotate it. They can only annotate what the group is saying. So I took all the sergeant first classes of the group and they had to be the leaders of the groups. So they couldn't input their information. Instead, I wanted them to observe and be able to write it, write it down. And then all of the staff sergeants and the sergeants were within the groups mingled about. But the key thing was to make sure that they didn't work with the people within those groups to help them further understand, you know, what was going on. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, so we, I, I did an AR via uh, index cards because, you know, people don't, are not always as uh, vocal about how they feel about something. You know, where we were at, Ed and I were, um, our NCOs are very quick to kind of give their opinion. Too quick. But when you're in a normal, what's that? That's it. sometimes too quick. Yeah, you know, and, and they didn't, it was almost like they didn't understand their their spot or type of thing. And, and it's good to get the opinions of people, but sometimes it's just not a good idea to get that. Um, but I knew that a lot of these uh, individuals were not going to verbally tell me anything. So instead, I had them write it down, and then they just kind of face down, slide it in with the rest of the card. So I don't know who is writing what. And what I found was it was less picking at what we were doing, and it was more supportive. I really liked XYZ. I enjoyed XYZ of this training because I learned LMNOP type thing. So creating that group dynamic and winning that majority vote. So what I did was is by teaching this class a certain way and then utilizing a certain group mitigation technique to get them to think outside the box with stuff, I basically won the majority of vote of, well, NCOPDs don't always have to be boring and, and drawn out and, you know, make no sense and then feel like my time was wasted. And that's where I was trying to go with it. And this, I'm going to read a little bit from what he has said. In previous chapters, I've taught you how to win individuals over. In this chapter, I'm going to teach you how to win groups of people over. The good news is that when people are in groups, they tend to develop herd mentality. This means that to win over groups over, you don't actually have to win over everyone. You just have to focus on a couple of particular aspects that capitalize on the group think and you will succeed. Ed, let me ask you, man, all those times that you did, you know, you, you utilize group think and whatnot. Did you, did you notice how certain individuals would kind of lead the charge on things? Yeah. So I did an exercise where I gave them uh, different items in a bag and I had to sort them in categories and do a Venn diagram that was free to their interpretation, how they want to divide these things, but they had to make it so other groups couldn't guess it. And the design 
you always had one person who was the ideas person, like, hey, what about if we divide it like this and this? You saw that personality. Even during the guessing of the other groups, you would always see one person kind of take charge and be like, is it this and this? So you always had that one just strong personality who kind of would step forward and take charge. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing, though. It's you using you use that and those those individuals, you can tell who they are and they're the strong ones. So once you know that you have them on board, you you you're able to use that particular situation to entice others to come on board. If like, for instance, you know, and you've heard me say it before on here. Uh, there's a difference between leadership and likership. I don't need people to like me, but I need to be able to lead people and they to be followers. But at the same time, if there's no likability there, that leadership is only going to last for so long, right? And when I say that, like, for instance, they don't have to like me, but they may like how we're going about it or the overall mission and how the mission or the task is brought up. That's what they're, they may like, and then they, they continue to go on. He talks about the science. In 1981, Latin and Wolf expanded on Latin's earlier work on group social dynamics and his social impact theory. They found that group dynamics are largely a function of three factors. The number of people in the majority group, how close people are to you, and how important the group is to you. There is almost always one or two linchpin people that satisfy all three of those requirements to power in the group dynamics. This is behind all groupthink, mobile mentality, and influences us all every day subconsciously. A good example. Ed, you would come to the office. Uh, my, or I would, I would go over to yours or, or in, in, um, in uh, Bitter Ninja's office. And the three of us would sit down and talk about stuff. You know, we would discuss it. We had like our own little group think type thing. Usually the majority wins on a lot of the stuff right. that we would talk yeah. about. Right. Um, and it, it could be a technique that we're using or, or a new, a new format of something. It could be how we're manning people at certain platoons. But a lot of times it was, okay, the majority rules. Very seldom would one of us, uh, whether it be me, you, or, or, um, Rick, very seldom one of us try to trump the group in a sense. But that was because we built that relationship. Um, But sometimes it was whoever was able to basically uh, present the strongest case about something. And that's how it would, you know, kind of trickle its way through. And then normally that's where we had to go because it was like, okay, well, you know, that's locked tight. That's the best idea. Even though all of us were offering up information. Um, and we don't realize that sometimes. And that's kind of like where he's going about this. Um, and, he, he, and here he's going to talk a little bit more about group dynamics. So let me back to the book and read a little bit more. Oh, I said back to the book, didn't I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> First of all, groups tend to designate one particular member as a leader and everybody else as a follower. It's not conscious. It's just an inevitable social dynamic that occurs whenever people gather. So I want to take that little piece. There was something that you all used to do. You used to call uh, uh, Acid River, was it? Yes. You want to explain that to the, the audience and kind of 
how that always goes about. Yeah, we had these little mats, and they were maybe one foot by two foot, and we would put them end to end, and then we would put the group on there, and it was three people per mat, and nothing could touch the floor. Everything had to be on the mat. They couldn't touch the walls, and we would give them a distance to cover but they had to figure the rest out, like how they were going to do it. And it would be like, I mean, we're talking 16 people, 16 people on these mats and they have to navigate across the acid river or down the hallway is what we use. And what we would do is that's when we would start looking for our group. Who's, who's the group leader Mm -hmm. self identified by the group. Who's, who's going to take charge. And, Interesting enough, it didn't matter. Sometimes it was the senior in rank. Sometimes it wasn't. Um, yeah. Sometimes it was, uh, you know, the junior person. Sometimes it was a female and a group of males. And so there was no real correlation between who took charge. It was just a personality driven thing. And, and they would take charge and they would execute the exercise. Um, Every once in a while, it would be a collaboration. Like I've seen them have votes and, hey, who thinks we should do it this way? And um, and it's not easy. Uh, we also, like out of bounds, you couldn't carry nobody because people have tried it. Actually, when I did it one time, I carried somebody on my shoulders, but that stuff had to go because of safety concerns. <laughs> but it was a team building. It was a team building exercise and it was an icebreaker. So this is something we used to actually do as soon as they showed up to class. Class starts at eight at eight Oh one. We're starting that exercise. So you got 16 people, maybe four know each other because they're from the air assault school. The rest don't have any clue. They don't know each other at all. So it was interesting. Yeah. And that's what makes it fun about it because they didn't know each other and a leader will emerge from that group. Uh, I mean, the very last time I saw it done, uh, I was, I was on a treadmill I think I was walking on the treadmill and uh, firm. He came in and he, it was that class, that last class before I left. That was the first thing that they did. The very first thing of that class. It was, there was no introductions or anything. The very first thing. All right. Hey, all of you in here, follow me. And then y'all did that. And to me, that, that just kind of, it also helps once it's talked about later, it helps that group understand how group dynamics works. Uh, So as I read on, Whenever a group tries to decide where to go to dinner, there's always someone who speaks up first and who others look to to approve and make the final decision. So that one I thought, I thought that was key, right? There's somebody who may speak up, but then others will look to who they see as the dominant figure for approval. You may see this in conversations too, all right? So think about it. If you're in a group of people and someone's talking, and it could be something funny, something serious, whatever. Watch people's eyes. Watch their faces. Who do they look at in the room? Do they look at the speaker? Or do they look at somebody else to see their reaction because they're trying to get approval of what that person is? Now, the speaker could be the dominant person, so they're going to stare at that person sometimes. But I've, I'm, I, I watch that a lot, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, completely. All right. This dynamic actually makes your job all that much easier by focusing on these influencers that act as linchpins for the group. You can spend less effort winning the group over and still achieve your goals. You only need to work on these influential people for you to get 
the group to agree with you or like you. Good marketers, you know, that's what they do. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the marketing piece, what he has in there. <laughs> but in friend groups, you can spend a lot of time, effort, and resources contacting each, each individual friend and trying to win them over. That takes too many resources and at some point becomes somewhat political when you're running deals behind everyone else's back. At the end of the day, you're not even guaranteed that you will win the group over. Instead, it's a much better use of your time and energy to focus on the linchpin of that group. I think that that right there, I think that's one of those things where I find that um, that group chats, like the the mass text, I think it comes into play because then you kind of get a feeling of like what I used to base it off of is if I brought up something, <clears throat> if I brought up something that uh, that had to get done and people didn't want to do. I always watch to see who made the first smart aleck comment. <laughs> usually that I'm serious. Usually that person was that linchpin for that, you know, that group or whatever. And then the rest of them started, right? Everyone else, everyone else in that group, they didn't send anything yet because they're like, okay, I don't know if I should do this. I don't. And then once somebody opened up that doorway, then boom, 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 boom. It just escalated. Right. Um, do, do you, do you uh, relate to that at all? I actually, uh, I never paid attention to that in the group chat thing. But now that you say it, mm-hmm. I'm trying to run back. Who do I think would it have been when we worked together? But yeah, no, I never paid attention to that in the group chat. But I, I could see that. I could see that being the, you know, um, the linchpin. And this is something that I've always paid attention to, especially when you got a platoon worth of people and you got 30 people. Yeah. You know, you need to rec- you need to pinpoint who is that person because that's the person that you one can't let get out of control because they're still gonna they're gonna have a negative effect. Then that's the person who could be your biggest ally as the influencer or leader, and and help you with your command and control. So those, yeah, no, I never pay attention to it in the group chat though. That's interesting. Now I'm going to look at my, my group chat for work and see. Yeah. And then and you could relate them as being the informal leader. You know, the informal leader can be very uh, persuasive to a group. So if you think about it, Ed, when you and I were working together um, as uh, seniors together, right? There was you and I, Watts, and then some others. If you ever read, you know, look at, think back. Usually, it was myself and Watts that would send out the little smart aleck comments. Oh yeah, it always well, you two you, usually either I started it. Yeah, well, you were senior seniors too, so you were the two sergeant first classes. The rest of us were staff sergeants, so you were a bad example. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we're horrible. All right. So the rest of this, uh, let me go. I'm, I, I want to continue on this chapter because I, I love all the information in it. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep reading some of this stuff and then we'll discuss it. All right. Who's who? The first step in winning a group over is to find who's who. Figure out who the leaders are and figure out who the followers of the group are. This is not a complicate, not as complicated as you might think it is. It just takes a bit of observation in how people react in situations where a decision must be made. It's not even just who people figuratively look to. It's who they physically and literally look to. And that's what I was talking about. When you're in a conversation with people, watch people's eyes within a group. I'm, I'm telling you, I do it all the time. I do it at whatever meetings. Um, actually, I just brought up, I was in a, I was in a meeting with a, a, a a group of higher ranking individuals. And I noticed 
eye contact with certain people at the end or it was uh, quite a few hours later, I ran into one of those people and I said, Hey, have you ever noticed X, Y, Z about such and such? And he's like, yeah, I know that. He's like, I said, like, yeah, I was, I was watching and I, I kind of noticed he's like, it was noticeable. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, well, and I was just, I was trying to let him know that I was noticing because I like to watch people in groups, you know? And, uh, and he was like, wow, I'm going to have to watch what I, how I look at people or how they look at me, you know, type thing. I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, it's communication. It's a form of it. Uh, when confronted with a situation where people aren't sure how to react, followers will look at that, uh, look at what their leader is doing so they can react appropriately. That once again, oh, that's just like what I said about like the first person that usually sends out a joke meme or something or something about the situation. Usually that's the leader of the group or that's maybe a troublemaker too. Who knows? Uh, another way to tell who a leader or follower is, is to take note of who takes the initiative to plan events and activities. Chances are they are relied upon to do so. Followers on the whole are more passive in group dynamics and may just be comfortable going with the flow. They don't make decisions and always look to others to act first. Once you have your leader and followers sorted out, you'll know who to cozy up to and gain the ear of. All right, so last bit here, and then uh, we'll talk about it for a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of fade the show out here. All right, so giving your words more weight. This is you, uh, if you're the person looking for that, that, that particular leader within that group dynamics. All right, by working with the acknowledged leaders of any social group, you feed off their credibility. You eventually get them to sign off on your own leadership ability. In other words, they lend a lot of their credibility and experiences to you. Even if you don't outright want to influence decisions, you can change the leader's mind and they can change the groupthink for you. This is extremely important because the more respected leaders you get in your corner, the higher in the group's ecosystems you will be. Ed, I just read that part. What does that remind you of? It's a little saying. It's a little saying that you actually put on a gift you gave me. I did. Oh, uh, oh wow! I can't even remember. Oh, <laughs> that's terrible. About about paying the bill for leadership capital. Oh, about leadership capital and paying the bill. Man, that is terrible. My memory. You oh. getting old? Hey, fifties <laughs> around the corner. What's that? <laughs> As if 50 is around the corner, I am losing it. I could not remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, always pay the bill. Yeah. But you, but yeah. when you think about it, right? What I just read there, um, you're basically paying that bill towards that particular um, informal leader for some leadership capital. That's exactly what that is. Yeah. Cause those informal leaders are honestly, they're stronger than they're more powerful than they, they know they are. They are definitely. And, doesn't have to be a senior person. Nope. They're still, some people are just charismatic. Some people are just, they just have that, like the, the others want to follow them. And, and uh, so that's why it's important to win them over because you know, it, you're, you're, you're investing that informal leader and you're really investing in your influence because now you got them on your side and they're going to bring all the people that want to follow them with them. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to teach you a little bit of tricks of the trade that I have done 
and it's probably not teaching you, maybe it's somebody out there listening. Um, so when I go to a new organization, I seek out those informal leaders right off the bat. Like that's one of the first things I look for. No joke. I look for an informal leader because I know one, they've got the respect of everybody around them. And just like we talk about with, you know, hey, paying that bill for the leadership capital. When we show up to an organization, just because we have rank or we have a position does not automatically give us the respect that we may need to be able to continue on. So what I like to do is I'll actually seek that person out. Um, And it's not to use them either because to me at times that influential leader or not influential, that, that informal leader, they, they have seen what has worked and what hasn't worked. And, you know, if you befriend them, they're going to help you along too, you know, because if they, you know, if they like you, that whole likability we talk about, if they like you, they don't want to see you fail. They want to, you know, hey, listen, you know, I know, I know you want to do X, Y, and Z. We tried that before and I'm not sure, you know, if that'll work. You're, you could still do it if you want, but I'm telling you, if you, if you listen to them or you say, hey, well, what about if we try it this way, this way, and that way, right? Now we're giving them options to help. We still try to get what we want. And then we have options to, you know, basically kind of get things flowing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and, and so if they've been in an organization before you too, you know what else they offer really is um, they offer historical data. Yes. Maybe you suggest something. They're like, we've tried that before and, and it didn't work. And then if they can give you the why it didn't work, then maybe you can fix it and make it work. Or maybe you can be like, you know what? That makes sense now. Um, that now I see why it didn't work. So they they can offer historical data. So that's why I say informal leaders are so valuable. Mm, yeah, I agree, man. But um, so that was uh, basically we went over six of the chapters. Um, you only had 14 in your book, but I had 16 in my book and yours is the newer. So they condensed it, it looks like. Yeah, I think they put some of the chapters for the listeners. I think they took some like those extra chapters and put them into other chapters where they could fit. Because even read in mind, there are chapters where it's like, OK, this kind of plays off of this. So maybe that's what they did. Not certain. Right. But man, I I've enjoyed the book. And uh, I did, too. too. To the mentor who recommended it to me, who I know listens because he tells me all the time. Um, well, not all the time, but he does tell me that he listens and he likes the show. Um, I want to thank him for recommending this book. Like, I literally got off the phone with him because he was reviewing my board file. And uh, I got off the phone with him and ordered it off of Amazon like immediately. But that also speaks of the influence he's had on me that I have that kind of trust in him. So mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it's at the same time, I'd have to say thanks too, because even though I've never met him whatsoever, and we've had this conversation before, I have been influenced by him because it's like, you know, these are good ideas. You know, uh, this was a great, but after you told me about it, I searched it and I was like, oh, hey, it's not that expensive. And it was a recommendation. Let me check it out. And when I did, I was like, this is awesome. And like I said, I've listened to it. I have listened to the audiobook three times since I bought it. I bought it like, I think, when did we tell? We talked about it on Sunday, I think, last Sunday, Monday. I mean, it wasn't that long. Something like that. Yeah, because I've only had it like two weeks and uh, I've completed it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had a little flight and I had some traveling I did. So I read it Yeah, while I was traveling. But. Absolutely. But, the, you know, hey, something that's key that, to talk about with this book, um, 
there was a chapter that Ed and I both feel very strongly about, and we are actually going to, we're going to actually turn that chapter into one whole show. All right. And the name of the chapter in my side of things, it's, it's actually chapter 12 of the, uh, the Kindle version. It's how to be a leader that anyone will follow. We're going to do a whole show just about that because there is some like intricate details in here where uh, the author goes into different types of leaders. Now, if you remember correctly, listeners, uh, we did the Toxic Influence show. Well, we're going we're gonna to turn that a little bit and we're going to turn it into a Positive Influencers show. Um, and we're going to use this particular chapter as the foundation for it because there is great information. Uh, Daniel Goleman is one of the sources in uh, in this particular chapter, which we've talked about it with emotional intelligence. He also has another book called Social Intelligence. So there's a lot of good data with it. And to tell you the truth, it's when I look it over, I think it's one of I think it is the longest chapter in the book, and it goes over different. What's that? It's a big chapter. It is. It is, and it goes over to different types of leaders. And we really wanted, you know, we wanted to do it justice because I think. You remember what I said, you know, influencers are leaders and leaders are influencers, or they should be at least, right? I really think for us to be able to go over each one of these types of leaders, it will help uh, listeners to, you know, kind of process, hey, what, you know, we talked about the bad ones. Well, let's talk about the good ones too. But with that, what else do you got to say, Ed? Anything else for the uh, audience? Uh, no, I mean, you know, looking at numbers, looking at downloads, everything looks great. Um, really appreciate the support. Hopefully we can continue to grow and reach new milestones as instinctive influencers. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, I promise I'm going to get on and do more Facebook lives. The problem with Facebook lives is when it's convenient for me, everybody in the United States and Canada are asleep. And when it's convenient for Brian, I'm asleep and they're asleep. So it's like, the time thing and but yeah i'm gonna try to get some more done i have a big big two trips coming up that uh i might have to try to do a facebook live one is to bastone oh yeah for uh, for the band of brothers celebration in uh memorial day weekend and the other one is to normandy for the d-day 75th anniversary i will actually be there on the anniversary i'm super stoked about it <laughs> yeah i'm i'm pretty excited for you too and also to you know hear some of the material you're thinking about putting together for it i mean that's gonna uh being a 101st guy i'm stoked so well i am going to the dick winters memorial in normandy that's one of the big highlights uh because that's where the band of brothers actors are supposed to be hanging out too so oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe if ed uh, works hard enough he'll get him get us an interview yeah hey i have a letterhead now so we'll have to um, we'll have to see maybe that would be awesome actually i'd probably freeze uh, yeah uh, mm, uh i'd like to um mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, yeah. um Hey, so as Ed said it, you know, we are, we, it's been, it's been a struggle for a while for both of us. Cause we've really been trying to like, we want to do more for the show and for the audience and, and for ourselves too. Um, but at the same time, the positions that we we've been put in and that we have to, you know, the, the, the hours that we have to work around, it has been tough, but our goal, please listen, our goal is to provide the best we can, uh, with the time we have. And, uh, just like what Ed said with the, uh, the, Facebook lives. I'm, I'm trying to gear up. As a matter of fact, I just went and bought a, a whiteboard 
because I got some, I got some points I want to, you know, kind of bring out there much like when we, when I talked about the give method, I wanted to also bring up some other things and I would love to use the whiteboard because I enjoy that. You know, it gives, that gives somebody a solid reference. Um, but Hey, if you have not joined our group, our closed Facebook group, go to Facebook, type in the search bar, one zero one influence. And that'll be the, uh, That'll be the podcast page. All you have to do is hit visit group. When you hit visit group, you're gonna answer three questions. Hey, please answer those questions because that gives us a little bit of idea. You know, we talked about earlier in the show about like tidbits of information, so we get to know each other. Join that group. Join some of the discussions. Some of the you know that we post stuff all the time, uh, tasks for the group, and that would help you know grow this instinctive influencer movement that we've been working on um ed did you have a task for the group at all this week i i really didn't this week i didn't even you know i got so caught up in the book and then yesterday i was uh breaking down the book for today's episode and i was also watching infinity wars to get ready for Endgame. that uh <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I really didn't even think of a task my friend well i you know what um I definitely have something we can kind of throw out there because this was this book was a recommendation for us. Yeah. It was a recommendation from a good mentor of something we should probably look at to, for further development. And then we turned it into a show. Well, my question to you as the audience out there, what's another good book that Ed and I could kind of listen to, read, whatever, that you think would help our influencers become better and that we could talk about it? Hit that task. Uh, this is going to be episode 28 of what uh, book is a good book that we should kind of review and go over that with you all um, for you know further influence. With that, think about uh, Instagram, 101influence. Also, check us out on Twitter, 101influence. Ed and I both are on LinkedIn. And then we have the website. Uh, instinctiveinfluencers.com. So check all those out. Ed, you got anything else for the audience? No, just... Uh... Continue to support us, please. Oh, we love it. We love the support we've been getting. I am Brian. And I am Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day.